Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Nat Hunter. Nat, you are so welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thank you. It's so exciting to have Nat on because Nat and I met completely by accident on a course that we're doing, but maybe it wasn't by accident. Firstly, I was struck, Nat, by something I read on your LinkedIn profile that said, Since I first became an employer in 1999, I have been exploring how to create happy and productive workplaces with strong leadership. So what have you learned? So, okay, well, that's a very interesting place to start. Firstly, thank you for, I probably should have said this at the beginning, but thank you for having me on this podcast. This is my first podcast. No way. Obviously, I've I've done talks and stuff, but I've never done a podcast. So this is way easier. Is it? Yeah, because it's just a conversation between two people. Okay. Well, I'll I'll um I'll treat it like that. So so the question was, what have I learned about about running organizations? And about happy and productive workplaces, because we talk about that a lot now, how to look after employees. But in 1999, I think that was probably ahead of its time. It's interesting. I didn't expect to run a company. It happened because I couldn't find a company that I was happy working in. And whenever I tried to work in a company, I felt pigeonholed. I felt like I could only bring a certain, a small slither of myself to work. And I found that really frustrating. And so by the time I started a company, I was about 32. So I'd had a reasonable amount of experience over a decade of doing either freelance jobs or jobs for organisations. And I just felt so uncomfortable in so many of those situations. So when I found myself running a company, I was so determined not to do to other people what had been done to me. And so I went in with that very open question of what happens if you make work somewhere where people can really show up and be themselves? So that was the starting point. There was no theory, there were no role models. It was really just using my own experience to navigate by. For me, the worst failure would have been to employ somebody and for them to feel squished and leave, for them to feel unhappy. People did later feel unhappy for other reasons, but not for being squished. So really the 14 years in which I ran a company, I I ran it with two other people 
who were very much in line with my values and they very much contributed. So to give you an example of something that we did, that I think that was different from other people was one day we had an employee and he he was he was one of our very first employees and we were a small company by that point, like five or six people. And he was turning up to work in a really foul mood, which put everyone else on edge. No one felt like they could ask him to do anything. And I think in another company, he would have been shouted at or told to change his behavior. But what we did, Alex and I, one of my partners and I did, we, we just said to him, should we go out for coffee? And we asked him what was going on. And it turned out his dad was in the process of like having a heart operation. He was really worried. And so, of course, the minute you, you, you allow someone to be a whole person and come to work with their whatever's going on in the rest of their life, then immediately his behaviour changed after that. So everyone was happy. And then after that, we started doing things. We started doing quite I suppose in retrospect, it was kind of quite radical, but it didn't seem radical at the time. It felt normal. So we did things like we would have um, staff reviews, fairly standard six monthly staff reviews. And also we do annual um, whole company, on the whole, whole company. Sometimes it's just the three directors and most of the time it was all of us. Where do we want to go? How do we want to be? What does success look like? And out of those kind of conversations, both the individual and the collective, we had an employee who was our kind of bookkeeper and he was a part-time bookkeeper and he was plodding along. And out of those conversations, I said to him once, I said, what do you really want to do? What would success look like for you? And he said, oh, I want to be a copywriter. So we just decided that we were going to move him out of being a bookkeeper and transition him into being a copywriter. And he went from being our copywriter then now he's a highly successful kind of Silicon Valley copywriter. And for me, that was, and I didn't even know about coaching or anything at the time. So I'm a coach as well as a designer now. But for me, that was like the most fantastic success. And we had another employee who loved Japan. He was actually a British born Chinese person and he loved Japan. He always had a thing about Japan. And I said, he kept saying he wanted to, to go to Japan. So in the end, we, we ended up booting him off to start a mini version of our company in Japan. And that was more than 10 years ago. He's now married to a Japanese woman. He still runs this little outpost of our company in Japan. So for me, I, I care way more about those, those stories than the client work that we did. So I think, you know, I'm just wired in that way, I guess. Yeah, it's brilliant. And did it attract people to want to come and work for you then as well, Nat? Did that ethos or how you lived your values in the workplace did that become kind of common knowledge well I think we were known for being quite uncompromising in the kind of work we took on as well so design company so we were we were the kind of company we did graphic design websites quite big projects quite big companies and and small ones we worked for everyone from you know Greenpeace to some you know big advertising things but we didn't take on work just for the money ever whereas most companies you know, this podcast is called beyond the numbers isn't it we learned somewhere along the line we developed a mantra of never do something just for the money because it just wasn't worth it it was so soul destroying 
So because we didn't ever do things just for the money, there was always we were doing it because we were learning or because we could, felt like we could do a really good job for the client. And I don't know a lot of football analogies, but about 10 years in, I mean, I'm, what I mean is I'm not very good about which football teams are good and everything, but about yeah. 10 years in, we hired a creative director and he was so thrilled to be with us. And I was like, why are you so thrilled to be with us? And he said, oh, it's like being transferred to Barcelona, which I think that was a compliment, but I know so, know, so, know so little about football. But basically, we had a reputation for doing good work, but the good work came from the same kind of principles. I don't think we had a reputation for um, employing people well, because I think actually we never, no one ever left. So it was just a kind of rolling ball full of people. But in a way, sometimes that can create its own problems when you have people who've been with you for seven or eight or nine years and you don't have that sense of keeping people you, you've got to bring in new skills for keeping those people alive and motivated challenged. and challenged yeah challenged is the perfect word exactly so okay. there's never anything perfect there but yeah that was just how we were wired I guess cool and you wound up the company well we wound up the company after 14 years and really, it was just because me and the other director who I mostly ran the company with, um, we were just at different places in our lives. I was at a point in my life where I was absolutely determined. There's a kind of thing, I guess, of just like, right, life's short. I only want to do stuff that makes a positive impact on the world from now on. I don't want to do anything that, you know, and even though I said we mostly did that but in running a company somehow, you do make compromises along the way. And he was at a point where he had small children and he just wanted to double his income. And I think he was tired as well, you know. So we couldn't find a way. I think also it's really hard. I wanted to switch the company to being very much focused on only ethical kinds of work. And he wasn't really up for that. We differed. He was an amazing person to work with. But actually, our core values were different. I always feel so passionately about that kind of thing. So we just agreed to differ and, and we closed the company. Yeah. Wow. And was that a shock at the time to everyone working there? Because it must have been a bit like a family as well. It was a big shock. It felt like a divorce, actually. <laughs> it was a big identity shift. And we gave everyone lots of notice and we you know, divided up all the the remaining profit with everyone and everyone went on to brilliant jobs afterwards so I think no one suffered from it and I think it was the right thing to do and there was an outpouring of surprise on the internet I've still got some of the screenshots of you know some of the social media at the time and stuff but in a way I'm quite proud because I think we ended it in a really graceful way at a high point rather than letting things peter out or go wrong or you know. Yeah, everyone gets bitter because you can't agree on, yeah, values clash and all of that. Wow. It sounds really courageous to have the whole thing from starting it because you couldn't find what you wanted in the world, bringing it to the world and then saying, I'm ready now for the next thing. Cool. Because the next thing, I mean, you describe yourself as a systems thinker. So what does a systems thinker do? <laughs> Trying to describe myself, it's always been really hard. I've never fitted into anything. Someone described me as an edge walker the other day, and I thought, oh, my God, that's the first time anyone's 
put me into a category that I can relate to. So in about 2006, I actually started a second company called Three Trees Don't Make a Forest because with other people, I woke up to the fact that design, whatever you're designing, whether it's a leaflet or a kettle, it makes an impact on the world and all materials come from somewhere and everything has impact. And the design industry just wasn't talking about it. So we started a kind of campaigning company called Three Trees Make a Forest that was really trying to get graphic designers to wake up to the impact of what they were doing. And it was pretty successful until about 2008 when the crash happened. And at that point, all the big design companies who had been interested said, look, Nat, we're just interested in the bottom line. And to be honest, my company and Sophie Thomas, one of my key partners, who also ran a a, a company at the time, suddenly the, the, the financial crash really changed everything. So it took a little dip. At that point, we were talking about green and eco design, which is very superficial in a way. And after that, I moved into an organisation called the RSA, the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturing and Commerce. And there I was working on investigating and promoting the idea of a circular economy. So actually the entire life cycle of all the materials that go into a product. So when you make a kettle or a leaflet or anything, how long does it last for? How does someone know what to do with it at the end of its life? What happens to it at the end of its life? There is no way. 80% of the ecological impact of a project is determined in the design phase. And yet designers don't think in systems. That's the first instance of that word systems. So from circular economy, actually what's developed in the last few years in the designers industry, and I've been doing more work with the design council around this, is this idea of systemic design. It is this idea that actually we are all connected. Everything is connected. And actually it's not, it's not even just environmental impact we need to be thinking about. We need to be thinking about social impact. So if you're designing a kettle or a leaflet, where did the materials come from? And where are they going at the end of that kettle's life? But who was working in the factories? How were they treated along the way? What was the impact of the kettle on the owner's life? What happens to the pieces of the kettle at the end of its life? And how are the organisations, the recycling centres and the reprocessing factories, how are they run in terms of social impact? Whenever you're working on any kind of project, could it be the latest evolution in terms of consciousness of impact in design is the word regenerative and it's interesting isn't it because the word sustainable that we're so used to sustainable design we've got to be sustainable net zero it's keeping things the same and actually there's this growing awareness this growing consciousness that keeping things the same is just not enough actually what we want is regenerative design so that if you're designing a housing estate at the moment the way that would be designed would be in cost of materials and how fast you can get it up and who would make the most money. And in terms of the building, when someone's building that, that, that housing complex, whatever state, everyone along the line, all the suppliers, all the builders are looking to increase their margins. It's so about the numbers. If you, okay, how can this house use the least energy, which some do, but actually everything goes wrong along the line and they don't end up being very energy saving at the end most of them if you also really thought about how people are going to live in those houses what would be the most beneficial to the area if you really looked at the area if you looked at the 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 bio region that the area sits in how you can see can't you that's obviously some of the very best practice in architecture deals with that but that's probably 0.5 percent of 
you know, actual daily practice. So this idea of regenerative design where you're trying to do no harm to even insects or birds or trees in the area and only do positive impact in everything else and not think just about humans anymore, but to think about everything. The humans Very complicated, no? It's really complicated, but it's really important. And as well as being complicated, it's enriching because it makes so much sense. When you start thinking about anything, you know, I can see your face on the Zoom call. It just, it makes so much sense. But all I keep thinking about as we're talking is, have we done so much damage? And not intentional damage, but, you know, what you're talking about, say I live on a street, a typical English street that is off a main road. It's a cul-de-sac. We've got green at the end and there's maybe 50 houses. They were built probably at the end of the 19th century. How long will they last? And if you had to knock them all to do what you're talking about, regenerative, how far back do you go? You know what I mean? Or is it too late? Do you have to find somewhere new? I don't know if I'm even articulating that question correctly, but I feel like we've run out of space in some parts of the world to do what you're talking about. So it's something like your 19th century building. Brilliant housing stock. They last for a long time. We're not really talking about them, but the flats that have been built just either side of me here in North London, they're probably designed to last for 40, 50 years. Building something to last is actually one of the best things that you can do. So in terms of systems, again, um, there are loads of things being designed all the time, aren't there? Advertising is the biggest industry in the world. That's insane, isn't it? It makes us want stuff. Some of the statistics that are coming out now about how we need to change our behaviour as consumers say things like, we need to be thinking about buying three items of clothing a year. I can see your face. (laughs) Yeah. So there's some radical change that needs to happen. So it's not We add shoes onto that or is is that included? No, no, it's all included, even underwear. If you just have a thought experiment with that, then what would you be doing? You'd be buying three incredibly well-made, non-fashionable, well, classic items. You'd be really thinking about how you wash them, how you repair them, and how the whole ecosystem around those pieces of clothing would be very different. You wouldn't be buying it from ASOS or Amazon and getting it sent you'd be trying it on making it sure it was absolutely right that it was really comfortable you'd be really caring for it maybe you'd be choosing it made from really well-sourced materials by well-looked-after people as well you can make those kind of decisions if your entire year's clothing budget goes into three items of clothing so I think it's more to do with changing our perspective on things in terms of what we need and how we do things. So I teach product design students quite a lot and MA students are really engaged with things like how do we design for insects? How do we, how do we co-design with insects? How do we have conversations with insects to know what they want? They're really engaged with getting 
out of this idea of everything being the next big shiny thing that someone wants to buy, which is definitely what would have happened 10 years ago. Wow. That's like, <laughs> it kind of blows my mind that people are sitting around talking about this stuff and it sounds amazing. And it feels like I've been alive at the wrong time <laughs> where we've come to this crisis point almost in the planet. But the other thing I thought about, if you're only buying three items of clothing in a year, I think the other thing you're going to do is make sure that they fit you for a very long time, which means you look after your body better as well. Well, there you are. That's systemic. That would be a systemic approach. But, you know, when you said that, I thought about like my grandfather's generation when they would all have tailored suits. Well, if you were of a certain you know, kind of person, you'd have a tailored suit and tailored suits were designed to change with you over your entire lifetime. So the seams go out and in. So the tailored suits have a lot of give in them. So they would know that you're likely to put on a bit of weight in your middle age. And there would be some give in the suits that you could take it back to the tailor and have them altered. Wow. Well, there's no point talking about where it all went wrong because we kind of have an idea and we know and we've, we've lived through it. So is this happening all around the world, Nat? Yeah, very, very much so. I'm really astounded at the pace of change of the level of conversation. I know it's happening in the States. I know it's happening in Europe. I know it's happening in Australia. One of the big things is people waking up to the realisation that we have got it wrong and the realisation that Indigenous cultures worldwide had it right all along, but our culture squashed them. And there have been several very, very influential books over the last few years there's an, an American botanist called Robin Wall Kimmerer, and she wrote a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. And there's a guy called Tyson Younger Porter who wrote a book called Sand Talk. There's an amazing lawyer in the States called Sherry Mitchell. And it's people like that who are, have you heard of the concept of environmental personhood? No. So environmental personhood is where there are certain places in, in New Zealand and in Canada, I think, where they've rivers and mountains now have the same rights as people. So you Whoa. can't damage or remove these rivers and mountains. So much is changing. Lawyers are getting involved. Scientists are getting involved. And many of the influential people have indigenous heritage that they're reconnecting with, but they also have PhDs. So they're being taken seriously by the West and that they have their roots in, in a much more ancient culture. And I think that's where the main influence is coming from. So if I'm a mountain, how am I protected? You know, how, how do you- You're legally know? protected. So, so someone, a group of people have campaigned to get rights for a mountain, which means that when a quarrying company wants to come along, they have to negotiate with the mountain. They can't just go in and go, oh, I'm gonna make a quarry. And I suppose it's really going to be companies, is it, that we're talking about here? Like, what about in skiing or hiking? Because if you yeah, think about Kilimanjaro, for example, and how much damage has been done to Kilimanjaro. Exactly. So if people campaign for Kilimanjaro to have legal rights, then that would all be negotiated. Whereas at the moment, it's not negotiated by anyone who is representing the river or the mountains. All of this actually is about representation, as we know from so much consciousness change over the last few years me too and black lives matter and all of that 
our society is designed for white men. Essentially, it's biased towards white men. So women or people who aren't white don't have the same natural privilege. And what's happening now is that you've got more women in the conversation, you've got more diverse populations in the conversation. But now there are people who are choosing to be in conversations representing the natural world, legally representing the mountains, the rivers, the tigers, whatever needs to be represented. And so this idea of diversity is becoming much more fair and much more just, which is really super interesting. And inclusivity as well, you could say. Very much. And, And what's very, very interesting about every single Indigenous culture is that it never divorced the masculine and the feminine. Actually, you know, I want to I want to not say white men. I want to say the masculine. Like we we live in a in a culture that values the masculine. It values productivity. It values getting things done. It values left brain logical thinking. It values tangible things. And our culture doesn't value care community consideration love you know all these things but in indigenous cultures that it's yin and yang the two have to live together so indigenous cultures have never had that thing where they devalue the feminine like our culture does and it's the feminine that brings in all that connectivity all that interbeing all that interweaving all that understanding that a tree isn't just something that can be cut down and sold for timber but the tree is life for so many animals and insects also there's beauty also there's obviously oxygen in the environment but the local council looking at the tree does not think about air quality or beauty at all never it's just not in the calculations so there are quite a lot of designers now who are working on using artificial intelligence to help trees express their value because actually that's one of the biggest challenges we have is to speak the language of social environmental impact to people who only care about the numbers. Absolutely. And I know that's so funny. I remember being in Geneva at a a talk about sustainability, but this guy came to talk to us who was working on ESG here with, I think working alongside the Institute of Chartered Accountants of England and Wales But he basically stood up and he said, you, because he was talking to the accountants, you are responsible for where the world is today because you put a number to everything. It wasn't the best way to start trying to get us round to his side, but it really struck home that what we talk about is, you know, unless that we measure things that matter, and then that means everything, nothing else matters. And that's absolutely incorrect. Well, what's really fascinating is the minute you start measuring the social or environmental impact, it starts mattering. So one of the really important things to do is to find ways of quantifying it. But the problem comes from the systemic nature of something. I've been working with an organisation who wants to take land, for instance, local councils own in London. And instead of the local council selling it to the property developer for 20 million. They want to turn it into an urban farm, which is used for training people, mental health, growing vegetables, local veg schemes. They've they've proved it on on a small scale in, in many different parts of London. And they know that they can deliver an enormous amount of value over 20 years. But what the local authorities want is they want 20 million pounds now. They don't want 20 million pounds saved 
over 20 years in fewer people using the health services, in more people turning up at school, in more people understanding about food and eating better, or people learning skills and getting more jobs in the area. It's too intangible. And how do you prove that this one little urban farm or this network of urban farms created that impact on jobs or health because it's so systemic? And that was something else that was coming to mind as we were talking. I was trying to imagine those who are in government today, which is kind of along council lines, I suppose, it's not our fault, I, I guess, our generation. It's what we've inherited. But how do you get us to change our ways? Because you talk about people coming after us and it's amazing. However, when will they get power or influence? Because if you come out of design school now and you take a job like somewhere that you said you get squished because that's what happens. And then you're told, well, actually, that's lovely, but you've got to wait. We're not ready for that yet. Do you know what I mean? Where's the tipping point that's going to force the issue? I totally know what you mean. And there's a diagram that I really like at the moment, which is about how systems change. Civilizations collapse and new civilizations emerge even if you're not being as dramatic as civilizations, you can look at things like societal change over the last few years and you can see that old beliefs have gone and new beliefs are coming up. I think many of us are learning and unlearning a lot. So you're talking about our generation. I feel like I'm unlearning so much and learning new ways. So I think that in order for the change to happen, two things need to happen. One is that you give people hope and a vision for what a different kind of society with more of the feminine qualities, more of the care and the compassion and the community, give them hope that that can happen. My personal mission is very much to support all those up and coming. There are loads of people all the way around the world, not just the the very young people uh, much older than that, who are working on really good grassroots changing the world kind of projects. And, And when they join up, you find that they form islands of coherence. And when it's islands of coherence, then you can get a kind of tipping point. And then the other side is the the masculine numbers-based economy that we've grown up in and helping to soften that and pull it back. Like many, many companies now, I mean, unfortunately net zero has turned into a bit of a culture war but if you're an organization looking at net zero and therefore trying to pull back your impact then that also softens the impact of the existing structure so the way i see it you have to work in two places you have to work in really encouraging the new growth to the different system whilst kind of softening and raising the consciousness of what's happening of the existing system yeah that makes sense and funnily enough i was doing some leadership development training with a group a couple of weeks ago. And during this, it it happens over a number of weeks, but we give the group people a project to do. And there were two guys who were looking at the qualities of leadership. And one of the qualities was warmth. And they both felt they'd scored themselves quite low on warmth. And their project working together over the next two months is how might we increase our score in warmth? And I was blown away, two men sitting there having this conversation. And it fills my heart with joy that people are thinking about this. 
And then in addition to that, I spoke to another podcast guest, a guy called Mason Cosby. And he said that he tells everyone he is bullish about kindness. And I just find that such a beautiful way of sharing the power that's in kindness. That's absolutely beautiful, both those stories. And, and that's, again, has a reason to use the words masculine and feminine as opposed to men and women, because we both have both. All men have masculine and feminine traits and all women have masculine and feminine traits. So it's what, how beautiful to hear that these men really bringing those feminine qualities in. Exactly, exactly. And I think compassion as well is probably one of the underrated ones because we talk about empathy all the time. And I'm a bit like empathy, of course, is important, mm -hmm. but you're never really ever going to know what somebody else is going through. And that's where the compassion comes in. And I guess if you have the compassion towards the planet, imagining what's happening to the rivers or the mountains, it might make you think differently too. That is exactly it. And I think what's really interesting at the moment is if you walk into any bookshop now, you see so many books about rewilding, rewilding yourself, forest bathing, connecting to nature. And that's it, isn't it? If we can all rewild ourselves, reconnect ourselves to nature, then we can bring in compassion for the natural world. And it sounds simple, but it really doesn't mean it's easy. So if I'm sitting listening to this, Nat, and, you know, and I'm actually maybe getting tired of listening to people talking about sustainability and regeneration and rewilding and everything, what's a simple step I can take to perhaps raise my own level of consciousness about the impact I'm making or I could make by tweaking something. Can you put diagrams on your podcast? I can't, but we could put them on the show notes. Yeah, on the show notes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can, yeah. Because I've been running workshops recently and there's a really nice diagram and it shows a picture of someone who's looking at carbon emissions, you know, net zero. Let's say you're running an organization, you're thinking, well, we really need to get to net zero. Actually, what's interesting is this diagram shows a simple kind of interconnectedness of actually education's connected, water's connected, energy is connected. And so if you just focus on one thing, if you just focus on removing carbon, you could be completely wrecking other things along the way. So there's something about starting to think about things in a holistic way. So it could be, you know, going back to our buying clothes, it could be that next time you buy a pair of jeans, what if you did an exercise where you thought through what's the energy that's gone into this pair of jeans, who's made this pair of jeans, and actually start to compare three pairs of jeans and make your decision based on that. And like which one will still be here when I'm 80. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because in, uh, if you imagine when jeans were first made, and jeans is an interesting example, because when they were first made, they were made in America and they were made to be really durable, weren't they? And they would have lasted for decades. Yeah. I've read accounts of people who work in Bangladeshi factories and making jeans who are so confused about why they're taking perfectly good pairs of jeans and putting them in machines that put holes in them. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation, I think. <laughs> but the term holistic really came to mind when you were talking there, because I think it's the same for people. I mean, taking a more holistic approach towards ourselves helps us then to feel connected to the planet. And I I guess that's the piece that needs to be in place because otherwise it's very hard to place yourself in the planet being in trouble unless you really see yourself as part of it. Well, I think that's a really astute observation. So I, I, I will say there's three levels that you work at. You work at the level of I, you work at the level of we, your family, your organisation, your team, and you work at the level of the world. And the world is big and enormous and how on earth are you going to change anything? So you have to start with yourself. And so absolutely, we, we're all extracting from ourselves in the same way that we extract endlessly from the earth. Well, let's take all the oil, take all the resources out. We're also extracting from ourselves and from our employees. You know, everyone, everyone's tired, right? Everyone's stressed, everyone's overworked. So actually bringing balance into ourselves is the absolute very best thing that you can do. And then from there, you can bring more harmony and balance and humanity to your family or your team or your organisation. And from there, that's when it's possible to affect the world. Amazing. And Nat and I have met on a course that is really about raising levels of consciousness and on a more, well, starting with yourself, first of all, and being more present. And a couple of weeks ago, I was chatting to a friend of mine in the US. And she was saying to me, you know, you really have to read this report called Beyond Net Zero. And it's by the Design Council in the UK. You know, she's like, why haven't you seen this, Susan? And I was like, well, I didn't know it existed. I never even heard of the Design Council. And when I was researching this episode, I learned that the Beyond Net Zero report was co-authored by Nat, who is in my practice group of three people on this course. And honestly, this shiver went down my spine. <laughs> and that's what I mean when I, at the beginning, I said, did we meet by accident? And I don't believe it was an accident, I believe this conversation was meant to be brought to the world. So maybe a little bit about the Design Council, Nat. Design Council, so it's about making life better through design. And it was established by, I think it was Winston Churchill's government in 1944 to support an economic recovery. So they're really the people who champion design and they're the government's advisor on design. So the government of the UK has committed to being net zero by 2050. So the government asked the Design Council to research how design is being used at the moment to get us to a low carbon economy or how it could be used so I it was brilliant because it was in the middle of lockdown and from my spare room I was talking to people in Malaysia and all over the world who was who were working on big systemic projects and I was asking them how it happened how does a big systemic project happen and that could be a housing estate it could be a dam to stop flooding all sorts of different kinds of things it could be a campaign to to make a 
whole town wake up to the idea of becoming more carbon neutral. And what we realized in the process, actually, I mean, it was such a brilliant, brilliant process. We realized that net zero, which is the national target, just isn't enough because net zero is, well, it's kind of like what I've been saying the whole of this conversation. It's so narrow minded. It's so myopic. In a net zero economy, you've got someone like Bill Gates, who's got you know, something like 17 private jets, who's investing his wealth in sequestering carbon in Iceland. And so it's really much more of that offset mentality of I don't have to change my life. I'm not buying three items of clothing a year. I, I need another plane every year, but I'm investing loads of my money in sequestering carbon. So it's this sense of offsetting. And actually it felt very cold. You used the word warmth earlier. It felt very cold. And, and actually, when we were researching, we started finding out much more about this idea of regenerative design and systemic design and radical diversity and inclusion. And it just feels so much more human. When you talk to people about net zero or you talk to people about regenerative design, I mean, the, the, the difference in body language and excitement is, is palpable. And actually, as part of that work, I was doing things like leading people on guided visualizations to imagine the 2050 that they want, inspired by a really great guy called Rob Hopkins, who founded the Transition Town movement. And what's really interesting when you do a guided visualization, most people are up for it, which isn't really normal in our culture, but people seem to be really up for it. And it's using a whole different bit of your intelligence. It's not using your left brain anymore. It's using your heart brain, your gut brain, your right brain. And every time I've done it, I've done it with all sorts of different kinds of people now. Every single time people say, wow, I've never been asked to imagine a positive future before. I've opened the paper and it's all about us going to hell in a handcart. It's all dystopian. So, wow, how refreshing to imagine a positive future. And of course, we live in this world, so you've got to deal with this world as well. But actually holding that thread to the positive future is so amazing. And the second part of that workshop that I run is, is taking one thing. So, that, so this is going back to what can people do? So if you really allow yourself to imagine a, a future that you really want, let's say you really want to walk down streets where people are smiling and there's a sense of community, then if you pull the thread back from that future to now, and whoever you are, whether you're a student, whether you run an organisation, whether you're an employee, everyone has a sphere of influence. So if you can keep that thread alive, and I write it on a post-it note, stick it next to your bed or whatever, and ask yourself every single day, what tiny little one degree move, what little turtle step could I take towards making the world better in terms of community? Even if that just means you go out and you smile at people looking like a lunatic or I you do get it involved every day. In... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Or, that's right. yeah, or you decide to get involved in a community project, but we can all do things. So if we all took that little thread and did a tiny thing every day, then actually that makes a, a massive difference. Absolutely. It reminds me of what Margaret Mead said that about, you know, the world needs a group of people who are willing to make change because nothing else ever did it. I mean, I'm really paraphrasing and butchering it, but yeah, she said something like that. And the one thing actually I thought of when you were talking about how it was cold when we were talking about Bill Gates and actually that offsetting is very transactional. And that's where it makes it cold because it's back to the business. It's a transaction and in and out. 
whereas actually what we're looking for is transformation. Exactly. And you can see it in the rise of mental health uh, crises and stuff, can't you? You know, that, that people aren't happy with the transactional nature. And God, well, you know, what happened with P&O Ferries the other day? That's a really good example, isn't it? Of people who are just seeing employees as pawns in their, in their balance book. And no one ever thought about someone who worked for that company for 35 years and how they're going to support their family now and the way it was handled and everything. And, you know, what's going to happen for the mental health of those people? What's going to happen in terms of their impact now on social services, on, on the medical services, on everything, on crime? So that's what I mean by systemic design. It's like, actually, when you start, when you bring the humanity back in, when you bring the warmth back in, the impact is just so different from the balance sheet. It's what we all need as human beings. Absolutely. And I don't know if you've read Simon Sinek's book, Leaders Eat Last, but he talks about how I think it was only in the 80s that people started to make people redundant. Before that, you considered how to reorganize the organization so you didn't have to do that and you know that's not that long ago so it's it's quite scary how far we've moved the pendulum in 40 years that you send out a recording on a zoom call to fire everyone it wasn't even a person didn't even show up i mean it's just outrageous it's shocking isn't it and and the the I think a lot happened in the 80s. So there's a famous designer that I met once and he was talking about how they made absolutely beautiful objects that were designed to last. And in the 80s, I'm trying not to use names of companies here, but in the 80s, they got bought by a larger company who who had a big marketing department. And the marketing department said, make it pink, make people want a new one, make it break, you know? And he got really depressed. I mean, actually imagine being the person who's got so much pride in your craft and then you're forced, you know, your arm up, uh, up your back, forced into making stuff that fails, either because it breaks or because people don't want it anymore, because it's not fashionable. That's, you know, planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence was an intentional thing to boost the economy. If we designed it in, we can design it out. Absolutely. And it's back to that squishing again, isn't it? You, he was squished. Nat, I can't believe we've run out of time and I could talk to you for hours more and I'm definitely going to have you back again sometime if you'll come if anyone's interested in connecting with you to learn more do some workshops whatever it might be how might they do that that's a very good question you can find me on LinkedIn or you could put my email in the show notes cool I can do that no problem thank you so much it's been such a fantastic conversation and we haven't even got onto teal organizations and b corps yet and I wrote down B Corps along the way and Teal. Oh, my God. Can we do a conversation on Teal sometime? Because I have yeah. Frederick Laloux's book here and I haven't I haven't finished it, but it's one of the ones on my list to really get into. Yeah, I've got I'd love to have a conversation about that. Ooh. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been brilliant. Thank you. I've loved it. Thank you Great. so much. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, 
or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.